This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Less successful have we been in addressing uh, 
acquaintance rape, which often does not involve extrinsic violence, often is, is not reported, and often the victims do not have corroborative evidence of uh, those circumstances. Those circumstances are often called date rape, um, uh, dismissively, I think, uh, and uh, they are uh, less successfully dealt with by the criminal justice system. It's very difficult to obtain uh, a conviction or to get an enthusiastic uh, set of responses by police or prosecutors to an instance in which there's no corroborative evidence and no extrinsic violence deployed, despite the fact that the victim's somatic experience is one of profound violation. Uh, so there was a backlash to the reform of rape laws, uh, the progressive reform of rape laws, and um, uh, that uh, backlash has involved a real challenge to uh, not to the traditional uh, historical uh, imposition of these procedural hurdles, but really to the force requirement. You've seen uh, most recently uh, scholarship come out about trying to shore up the force requirement and provide states with a rationale for why to continue with the force requirement. I can go into that in some detail. Uh, in the paper, I use two cultural critics, Camille Pagley and Katie Royfe. They're sort of easy to use to to, to talk about the iconic cultural uh, response to progressive reform. And then I use two legal scholars, Janet Haley out of uh, Harvard and Jed Rubenfeld out of Yale, who have launched uh, uh, profound critiques of the progressive reform uh, of rape law. Uh, there was almost no uh, uh, resistance in the academy or popularly to the conservative reform of rape law. Uh, uh, very few legal scholars have even noted that there has been an increase in uh, uh, incarceration terms and mandatory minimums for convictions for sex offenses. Uh, there has been some scholarship on uh, sexually violent predator laws, civil commitments after terms of incarceration, uh, but uh, and some critique of uh, collateral consequences, civil collateral consequences, but not much. So what you have are two very different kinds of reform and two very different kinds of responses to that reform. So what does that tell us? We're now gonna shift uh, the analysis to campus sexual assault. So you know that uh, the um, uh, Title VII was uh, a civil rights statute passed in 1972 that provided for uh, equality in uh, and prevented and uh, prohibited sex uh, discrimination of which sexual harassment and sexual violence are a part of uh, sex discrimination, and it prevented uh, and prohibited sex discrimination in uh, federally funded uh, in institutions, and in particular, we're looking at institutions of higher education for sexual assault purposes, although it spans, uh, unfortunately, in other areas. So the Office uh, for Civil Rights in the Department of Education issued guidance in 92, in 2000, and 2011 uh, under its congressional authorization to uh, promulgate rules and regulations and to interpret and enforce uh, uh, the Title, title IX uh, of the education law. Um, and uh, OCR has clarified that it will require uh, campuses to use a preponderance of the evidence standard in these uh, disciplinary proceedings and it will require equitable and prompt responses by the, uh, uh, by the campuses, colleges and universities. Uh, I could go into some detail about the other parts of the guidance of OCR, but the fact that OCR has issued this guidance, particularly the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, has uh, uh, incensed many, 
and uh, many make a number of claims in response to it that I'll talk about and that we make here on the panel today. Uh, additionally, at a similar time frame, uh, most recently, actually, uh, formally, uh, states have required colleges and universities to adopt what are called affirmative consent rules for campus uh, conduct. What this means is that uh, sexual interactions, uh, primarily penetration, but some campuses go further than that, require affirmative agreement between the parties so that it's not just I acquiesced and someone imposed his or her will on me, but it's that two people agree to engage in the sexual intimacy that they're gonna proceed with uh, before it's considered legitimate. These affirmative consent rules, the first state that did this was California and um, uh, New York uh, rapidly followed suit uh, many, uh, more than a thousand, I think 1,400 uh, colleges and universities across the country have affirmative consent laws or affirmative consent rules for their disciplinary proceedings uh, now. So in terms of the, what, that's what I call the progressive reform of campus sexual assault and how institutions respond. You've got OCR issuing guidance about the procedures that need to happen and you've got states imposing substantive rules uh, uh, requiring affirmative consent for sexual interactions that happen on campus. Uh, there's been extraordinary, or, or considerable at least, maybe it just seems extraordinary to me, considerable resistance to uh, both of these things. And I wanna talk about the five arguments that have been advanced uh, against uh, uh, OCR guidance and affirmative consent. First is the argument that campus sexual assault adjudication requires unique procedural hurdles. So uh, in 2002, Harvard University, for instance, imposed a prompt complaint requirement, a corroboration requirement, and cautioned against taking the uh, victim's uncorroborated testimony at face value in its campus proceedings. This was in response to a spike in accusations that happened once it started to take sexual assault seriously, and seven women in one year came forward. Six of those uh, uh, complaints were essentially dismissed. There was no um, uh, disciplinary action taken and uh, uh, the university decided it needed to do something. So what did it do? It searched for what sorts of procedures might dis dispose of these cases rapidly, saw these in the criminal law and imposed them in campus sexual assault proceedings. Um, since that time, uh, Harvard has changed its procedures. It's been through a number of iterations uh, having been reviewed by uh, OCR uh, and, and uh, there have been complaints against Harvard for uh, uh, violations of uh, uh, Title IX. Uh, but I just wanna start the conversation about the opposition to the changes in campus sexual assault by noting that there was direct importation of these discredited rules from the criminal law into the context of campus misconduct. The second thing is the argument that campus sexual assault adjudication violates due process. So recently you've seen a group of Harvard law professors, separately a group of UPenn law professors come forward and say, you know, the procedures that my university has come up with to adjudicate campus sexual assault violate fundamental notions of due process and uh, are very unfair to the respondents in these cases. Um, and, and what I will say to those arguments is that I think that first, they're non-unique. That is, I'm concerned that there's a sudden interest in due process when we're talking about campus sexual assault, as opposed to the many other kinds of misconduct that campuses routinely adjudicate. They routi routinely adjudicate 
sexual misconduct. They routinely adjudicate uh, academic misconduct. They adjudicate even serious criminal actions. Um, one circumstance uh, coming out of New York that I know about uh, uh, in some detail is that there was a fraternity hazing in which there was a death uh, of a pledge by blunt force trauma. The coroner uh, ruled the death a homicide, but the prosecutor chose not to prosecute for two years, uh, not to bring charges for two years. But the campus had to act to protect the safety of the institution. And so the campus brought forward the uh, fraternity members who had hazed and killed the student on uh, disciplinary charges and made a decision to expel those students. Now, no one in that case said, well, oh, this violates the due process rights of these students, and oh, the campus should get out of the way because these are really crimes. Instead, what they did was people understood that the campus has a different interest than the criminal law does in these kinds of cases and has an, a mandate under Title IX to provide equal educational opportunity and safety to its students. So uh, we could talk more about the due process arguments. I think the only reasonably good argument advanced is one around the Fifth Amendment, which is that to the extent that campus codes require students to participate and engage in these proceedings and testify in some ways in the disciplinary proceeding, uh, you have a Fifth Amendment challenge because the testimony could be taken in a later criminal proceeding. I think that's a valid claim. It's utterly non-unique. And it's one that applies to the circumstances of the hazing, for instance. It's one that applies to non-sexual uh, circumstances. And we should come up with uh, a response to it, either use immunity for the person who has to, is forced to testify, or um, the right to uh, remain silent in a campus proceeding. Uh, the, the third argument that people advance is that campus sexual assault uh, adjudication harms impressionable young women. And you see this in the literature, the popular literature, you also see it in the scholarly discourse, that uh, young women are encouraged to think of themselves as victims when they weren't really victims because they read a pamphlet on sexual assault because they took a climate survey. Um, and this is the notion that the feminists themselves, that we, are creating victims by uh, being concerned with sexual assault. Um, uh, and I don't think that's a persuasive argument. We could talk about it though, if you um, uh, the fourth argument is that this campus sexual assault adjudication harms young men with bright futures. So the bright futures, if you just type in sexual assault and bright futures into, into Google, you get a lot. Um, and it's not necessarily talking about the bright futures of the, of the victims who are uh, forced out of, of uh, the campus because of having experienced sexual assault. It's often about those who are accused or adjudicated either at the campus level or in a criminal proceeding. Uh, oh man, that was fast, that 15 minutes. Um, uh, adjudicated uh, uh, as having been responsible for a sexual assault. So the Bright Futures argument I think is coded class um, uh, because I think there are class codes in that and I think it's about not only just we have sympathy for people who are in college, I think it's also about um, the sense that uh, 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 these are our people and that we should care about them because they're our boys who are being uh, uh, judged uh, uh, sexual offenders. In stark contrast, by the way, to how society views sex offenders and the willingness we have as a culture to impose draconian uh, criminal, uh, 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 either criminal penalties or civil, so-called civil uh, penalties after the fact. 
I think we've got to move some sympathy uh, around there. The last thing I'll mention is that, um, and this is the one that comes up possibly most often, the argument that disciplinary proceedings are the wrong forum. That it really should, all of this should go to the criminal law um, uh, for sexual assault on campus. And that affirmative consent is the wrong standard uh, to be used. Um, and this, this wrong forum argument, I think, assumes that the criminal law is a, a welcome place for, for acquaintance rape victims. It is not. Um, it assumes uh, possibly that although hostile or, or mildly disconcerting for acquaintance rape victims, that uh, 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 it's easier to reform the criminal law even after the 200 years of history we've had with a criminal law uh, system, a criminal justice system that's largely hostile to acquaintance rape victims. It's easier to reform that than it is to make campuses uh, 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 competent to handle these cases. Uh, I think that's uh, wrong as an empirical matter, um, although I think we should work hard on both. And then I have a number of lessons that I think we should learn uh, from these histories uh, when we look at them together and how the arguments are coming out. The first, I think, is that feminists should support the campus adjudication of sexual assault not to the exclusion of the criminal law, but it should be another forum that's available to victims uh, and that we should make sure that campuses do a better job. Uh, they're not always doing a good job either for the accused or the accuser. Um, uh, and we can talk about that. The second is that feminists should oppose any procedural, unique procedural protections for the accused in campus sexual assault proceedings that are not provided to everybody else accused of any other kind of misconduct under the, under the disciplinary code because it's really the procedural hurdles from the criminal law dressed up in sheep's clothing. The third is that feminists should oppose any administrative mandatory minimums. This came up in California. There was a law that went through the legislature that uh, Governor Brown vetoed uh, that was a mandatory expulsion for those found uh, responsible for sexual assault. I think those are um, uh, a bad idea. I think shaming, uh, uh, public shaming, which some people are interested in in the campus context, are also a bad idea, primarily because I think they are uh, counterproductive to victims' interests. They will deter uh, findings of responsibility, and uh, I don't think they're uh, fair to those people who are accused. And then um, the last thing I'll say is that feminists should attend to sexual assault victims who do not attend college. Um, for those of us who are interested in sexual assault, uh, we should remember that those who are in uh, college are privileged relative to those who are not, and uh, that they're also, those who are not in college are at greater risk for rape and sexual assault than those who, who are in college, the studies indicate. And uh, I think we should spend some time making sure that our focus is not exclusively on campus sexual assault, and the only way to focus on people who are not in institutions in, that way, in this way is to focus on the criminal law. So I think we've got to go back and do a better job in terms of uh, uh, reforming the criminal law. And, and we've got our work cut out for us there. Thanks. Thank you, Michelle. I'm now going to introduce Joseph Cohen, the Legislative and Policy Director at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. Uh, Joe is a graduate of joined FIRE in 2012, having demonstrated a career-long dedication to advancing the cause of civil liberties. He has served as a staff attorney at the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania, a staff attorney for the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, 
and is interim legal director for ACLU's affairs in Nevada and Utah. Donnell leads FIRE's efforts to defend and advocate the cause of students' rights through legislative advocacy. Thank you for that introduction. <clears throat> Caleb Warner drives a truck for UPS, um, but back in 2010, when he was a student at the University of North Dakota, his future looked a little different. And that was the year that Caleb was expelled after being found guilty of a sexual assault by a campus court, despite overwhelming evidence of his innocence that should be impossible to ignore. The evidence clearing Caleb Warner was so powerful that the local district attorney filed criminal charges against his accuser for filing a false report to the police. And I'm not talking about a situation where this person was unable to prove their case, but there were witnesses that night, throughout the night, of her leaving his room, talking about how it was some of the greatest sex of her life, repeatedly, of three different people, two different genders. There were details in terms of location that were wrong, and it also turned out that there were others who said that they found out that she was pressured into claiming that it was a rape. So there was a lot of just extrinsic, very important evidence to consider in this case. Um, despite all of that, UND refused to reverse its findings of guilt until my uh, organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights Education, or as we're better known, FIRE, came to his aid with the national campaign. And FIRE, as you may know, is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that deals exclusively with university student and faculty rights. And I lead with Caleb Warner's case not to argue that false accusations are the norm, um, but rather to emphasize that justice requires that we make individualized determinations that are based upon the known facts of cases and not based on statistical assumptions or where we generally lean on issues. And FIRE comes to the issue of campus sex assault with the belief that there is no doubt whatsoever that institutions of higher education are both legally and morally obligated to effectively respond to known instances of sexual assault. But public institutions are also required by the Constitution to provide meaningful due process to the accused. And these two responsibilities don't have to be in tension. Given that the high stakes exist for both accusers and accused in disciplinary hearings, it should be beyond dispute that neither student's educational opportunity should be cut, for, cut short unjustly. Just as it is morally and legally wrong to, for a college to sweep accusations under the rug, it's also inexcusable, both legally and morally, to expel an accused student after a hearing that provides inadequate procedural due process. And I probably don't need to tell anyone that's here that time and time again, we see news reports and we read about regrettable outcomes that occur on campuses across the country where the outcomes are unfair to both sides. The injustices really do go in both directions. So, how did we get to this point, and what can be done about it? Colleges and universities' involvement in campus sexual assault has its roots in Title IX, as you already heard from Dean Anderson. Most people associate Title IX uh, with equality in college athletics, 
But it does go beyond that, and, and, and importantly, it does. In 1998, the United States Supreme Court held that sexual harassment was a form of sex-based discrimination prohibited by Title IX, and that's a case called Gebser versus Lago Vista Independent School District. Uh, the courts had already long held in the employment law context that sexual violence could constitute an extreme form of sexual harassment when the violence was unwelcome conduct based on a victim's gender. Then in 1999, when deciding Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education, the United States Supreme Court held that an educational institution could be held liable under Title IX if it was deliberately indifferent to known instances of peer-on-peer -peer sexual harassment. But another key holding of the Davis case that gets ignored, and it's really important, was that complainants were not entitled to the remedy of their choice, but they were entitled to a good faith effort by institutions to respond and to prevent the recurrence of known instances of sexual harassment. In 2001, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights committed to the definition of peer-on-peer -peer harassment in the Davis Court in a guidance document to educational institutions. The real sea change, as you heard, came in 2011 uh, when the Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, issued its April uh, 4, 2011 Dear Colleague letter, which outlined what it considered to be the best practices in addressing campus sexual assault and also announced that the failure to follow its best practices constituted a breach of Title IX. Amongst the recommendations in the Dear Colleague letter uh, were the controversial assertion that institutions needed to decide the cases with preponderance of the evidence, you heard about that already, uh, which require only the fact finder conclude that evidence indicates the accusation is 50.01% more likely true than not. This is interesting because this goes directly to Dean Anderson's point about rules that only apply in one particular context. This is a rule that does not apply to any other campus disciplinary proceedings. It only is mandated by the Department of Education with respect to cases under Title IX. Um, and FIRE, at least, has long held that when we talk about due process, we talk about it not just in terms of campus sex assault, but we deal with it in terms of kids being accused of drugs in the dorms, kids being accused of fistfights, you know, all sorts of different things. The one area where the courts have created a separate carve-out that we don't argue is where the courts say that schools have a particular expertise in academic dishonesty and cheating that courts shouldn't overturn. So in that area, there's very settled different area of law. But when you're talking about criminal activity or activity that is also criminal, um, we think that the due process protections should be across the board and uniform. Um, The 2011 Dear Colleague letter also discouraged schools from allowing accused students to directly cross-examine their accusers and interchangeably use the term victims and, and complainants in the pre-hearing context. In a subsequent settlement with the University of Montana, OCR actually instructed institutions that in some instances they may take disciplinary action against a harasser even prior to the completion of a Title IX and Title IV investigation slash resolution. This is not the same, by using the term discipline, they're not talking about taking interim measures to make sure there's campus safety in the meantime. They're specifically talking about discipline, punishments for people before there was even investigations being complete. While tackling the obvious failings of the current system is useful and necessary, exchanging an institutional disregard for accusers for a new institutional disregard for the rights of the accused isn't an acceptable outcome 
and doesn't really advance justice. So the real question to me isn't why are colleges involved in addressing campus sexual assaults. Instead, I think we should be asking what role they should be playing in doing so. Thus far, a great deal of the national conversation and discussion about how to best address campus sex assault on, has accepted the premise that universities are qualified to serve as the adjudicators. But if there's one thing that I think all of us agree on, it's this. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe anyway, I shouldn't say all. Maybe the deans in the room might not agree on this, but few if any schools have demonstrated the competence necessary to capably respond to the problem of sexual assaults on campus. Too many campus administrators have injected their personal bias into the process, and while a vast majority uh, try their best, they simply don't have the tools or the expertise. Because at the end of the day, you are asking deans of physics departments, English professors, and students to determine whether date rapes occurred, even though they have no area of expertise here. And they don't have access to forensic evidence, or experience in interpreting it even if they had it, or a means of holding it securely without tainting it. They lack the ability to subpoena witnesses, or to place witnesses under oath. There are cases, and I'm not making any exaggeration here, where there were witnesses in the room who were friends with one or the other party, who didn't want to come forward because of their personal friendship with one or both of them. And the adjudicators couldn't make them say what they saw and heard. It's nuts to think that you can get a case right knowing that that evidence exists without it. Um, they don't have access to discovery, legally trained judges presiding, rules of evidence to sort out what's reliable from what isn't. They don't have lawyers participating in the process for both sides. Expecting under those limitations for these campus tribunals to consistently reach fair conclusions is just irrational. So there should be no surprise that there are real victims who find their cases you know, mishandled, and there are innocent people who also find their cases mishandled with these limitations, even when people are trying at their best with their best integrity. And FIRE isn't really alone in this assessment. Um, so th that the college is dealing with rape outside of the criminal justice system, at least the adjudication part, is problematic. And that concern was expressed even more forcefully by RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, perhaps one of the oldest and most respected victims' rights organizations in the country. And they told the White House Task Force on addressing campus sexual assault, and I'm quoting here, while we respect the seriousness, seriousness with which, sorry, the tongue tied there, <laughs> while we respect the seriousness with which many schools treat such internal processes and the good intentions and good faith of those who devote their time to participating in such processes, the simple fact is that these internal boards were designed to adjudicate charges like plagiarism, not violent felonies. The crime of rape just does not fit the capabilities of these boards. They often offer the worst of both worlds. They lack protections for the accused while often tormenting victims. So I'm gonna try to quickly go through what I think are the solutions with my remaining time. I don't think schools are good at determining the guilt or innocence in these cases, but I do think that they have a critical and important role to play. And they can still meet their obligations under Title IX by providing a vast range of intermediary remedies and responses to student complaints. Colleges should be advising students where to turn to make sure their evidence is preserved. They should be helping complainants report allegations to law enforcement. They should be providing training to first responders to make sure the inter initial interviews don't chill people from coming forward 
and they should be ensuring the information gathered during those crucial interviews are helpful to fact finders down the road. They should be providing counseling services, academic accommodations, and housing accommodations. They can separate students in that way. If you think someone in your chemistry lab may have raped you, maybe someone should be moved from a different section. If someone in, you think someone in your dorm raped you, maybe we don't need people to be afraid to get into their elevators or their laundry rooms alone. They can do all of those things without trying to create a shadow justice system. Um, so, in the real world, however, I suspect the federal government will continue to require schools to adjudicate those cases uh, in the future. So even though I don't think that that's the ideal policy prescription, uh, I think schools should be taking steps to improve their on-campus systems. And that, first and foremost, requires giving students the right to have active participation of counsel, as opposed to just having a lawyer who may be there present with them in the room. Um, and the Fifth Amendment issue was already addressed by, by Dean Anderson, so I won't go into it in, in further detail uh, here, except in, in Q&A. Uh, if it comes up, but there's life in prison in many of the states, as you heard about the overly draconian uh, criminal justice aspects of this in, in many of the states. So asking 18-year-olds to talk on the record, automatically waiving their Fifth Amendment rights in these cases is uh, really terrible uh, policy. Um, I do think that schools should raise the, the standard of evidence to clear and convincing, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, but an intermediary standard to reflect the seriousness of these cases. I think that should happen not just in the campus rape cases, but all of the campus criminal cases, and I would also love to see it in the cheating and plagiarism cases. I just think it's the better standard for academics to use across the board. Um, and, um, and I also think that uh, the third step is that we should be requiring institutions to disclose the evidence that they have, both inculpatory and exculpatory evidence. There's so many cases that we see where the evidence is concealed against one or the other party, and it should outrage us no, no matter which side schools are, are benefiting in an individual case when they do that. Um, so, um, the, and, and then I think they should eliminate conflicts of interest. They shouldn't allow one person to do multiple roles, because that allows one person's bias to permeate the system. Um, separating the roles. Uh, will really help fu fundamental fairness uh, here. And with that, um, you know, the only other thing I would say is that I encourage everyone to, to really view this issue as one where there are needs on both sides of this coin and to resist the temptation to line up on either Team M or Team F, but instead think that there are a lot of really important rights here that are at stake for everyone. There are real victims uh, of camp sexual assault that need, that need help and we need to provide it to them. And there are falsely accused people who also need a fair shot. So we need to do that too. And with that, um, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for the organizers of this day and the panel.
current law practice continues to build upon its expertise in Title IX investigations. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to be here, Michelle. I feel like I have a lot to follow up with after Joe's uh, remarks. But um, I, I, I want to give a little bit more by way of background as to who I am because I think that I'll give some context to my remarks here today. Um, I'm an attorney in private practice, and primarily um, these days I spend a lot of times on the campus of the University of Virginia as an external um, investigator for their Title IX um, endeavors now in the wake of, or in the aftermath, I should say, of the Rolling Stone um, debacle that they had had to deal with. And um, I took over compliance matters after Terry Fine worked at, um, at the Women's Law Practice for the State System of Higher Education after discrepancies were pointed out in the Higher Education System of Pennsylvania about their Title IX compliance mandates and the efforts that they had to undertake to reform some of those things. And um, my experience, I have some good news to bring to bear in the Title IX world because I think in my experience that you're less apt to find today the shadow justice system that Joe referred to in light of the good changes that have are being made on by universities and colleges on their campuses. And the biggest um, place that I see that is that in the wake of um, the changes that were have been recently brought about after the Dear Colleague letter, after the VAWA amendments, and um, you know, sort of the best practices are taking shape, one of the things that was mired down there was this investigative approach that the federal government endorsed as being the manner and mechanism as to how campuses should be dealing with sexual assault allegations, harassment, and um, gender-based violence on campus. And that's something I do, I deal with all day, almost every day it seems like, when um, I'm handling one of these investigations for a university. Um, and there is, you know, I, my remarks, what I had put out for myself was, there is this question that's being asked of these universities that whether universities are capable and effectively of effectively handling these reports on campus. And the truth of the matter is that university is not, um, is a very different world than the business place even, or um, a public place where even an acquaintance rape would happen. You know, it's not manium. There is a campus, there's rules, and there's facilities and advisors, and um, it should be that if there's an approach that's mindful of the environment and the atmosphere that these young people, all of the age of 18 to 22, um, are, are working in and living in daily. And um, I, it, my, it's my experience that this investigative approach that people are only starting to now um, study and work through the many facets of is, um, is answering the question, does the university have the capability of effectively handling these allegations? Well, they're gonna have to do it no matter what because you have to advise your students, you have to take care of your students, you have to know how to effectively handle them, counsel them, and you have to make determinations as to whether or not somebody should be enjoying their right to, you know, to sit in those classrooms, albeit with, you know, that they're paying tuition. They don't have the right to do that because they're gonna put other students um, in harm's way. And I think the answer with the investigative approach that universities are now taking as guided by the federal government is unequivocally yes. And um, I wanted to focus my remarks on why I think that's true. 
Um, certainly there is, as Joe pointed out, um, criticism of due processes and the courses of actions that universities have taken before in you know, effectuating, bringing about discipline or terminating a student from you know, the rights and privileges of their university. Um, but this new approach that I think collectively we're all just starting to wrap our head around, this investigative approach is doing more to inform universities and is doing more for both the victims and the accused than anyone had ever given it credit for. Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit about my background in overseeing investigations. I was a prosecutor in former life, and one of my um, big adversaries is in the room, so I won't go too much into that. Um, a, a former public defender who we started out sparring together. Um, so, and you know, my criminal background certainly informs the approach that I take to an investigation because I understand that the stakes are high. You're dealing with someone's life and liberty. You're dealing with their ability to go to school and get a, an education rather than merely get a license to drive a truck and a vehicle. Um, and I, you know, I'm a commissioner on the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, and so I work really closely with victims' groups as stakeholders. And I, you know, as a prosecutor, I've dealt with people who told me horrible stories day in and day out. So yes, my work in the criminal justice realm informs my, the way in which I interact with victims, those who have been victimized, and those who have a terrible story to talk about that may not have a lot of clarity with which they can speak on something that's awful that happened to them, but helps, that helps me make sense of things. And so as an investigator, I approach these allegations and these situations and these scenarios mindful, obviously, of the stakes to the accused and what effect this is having on a victim. So a little bit about the investigations approach um, and how universities are using this to their advantage. Well, what, is it, what does it do? Well, obviously the pitfalls that Joe has talked about, about not having due process and Fifth Amendment obligations or limitations when someone can participate in the defense of themselves in the wake of these allegations is huge. Um, but um, you know, with the investigative process, there is the ability to further engage. You know, one of the other things that's also, you know, highly criticized is the opportunity to be afforded counsel. So today, with you know the federal government's approach or you know insistence that universities start to utilize best practice in, in this regard, you know, it allows students to bring an advisor, and most more often than not, these advisors are attorneys, and they, these attorneys again are informed and they're mindful of again what's at stake, but um. What, what it helps do is that, is, I think, is less adversary. And I guess I, I should start by what does the investigative approach involve? Um, well, it's less just we're going into a court of English professors and math professors who are gonna hear about someone make an accusation and someone defend themselves, however blindly they may do that or however um, likely they may do that. Or, um, the investigative approach really calls on people with experience to unearth the facts and evidence and make determinations about whether or not um, allegations give rise to a finding of responsibility or non-responsibility under a policy that's at issue. Because we're not in a criminal law and we're not looking at you know, whether elements have been made out, we're looking at the facts as they exist. And why I think this is a good approach and why it seems to be working in my experience 
is that it's informing universities and it's giving universities the proper context in the receipt of the evidence that they find there. I mean, this is a world, the world that these kids live in is far different from an evidentiary world that you're gonna find in criminal courts. These kids live in a world where Snapchat is real, they communicate sometimes primarily only via inbox over Facebook throughout the course of the night. Their phones do more talking than face-to-face -face interactions with one another. And they leave a wake of social media um, frenzy coming and going um, in any one of the interactions and certainly incident to a lot of these social interactions that give rise to an allegation or a terrible episode that is either misconstrued or turns into someone's worst nightmare. Um, and this investigative approach, particularly one, the one that's being spearheaded and starting to be used uh, throughout the country, what it does, I think, is it really manages the expectations of the parties. Um, because in taking an approach where a university says, you are gonna be, um, these allegations involve you, we're giving notice of the fact that student X has complained about you to student B, and Christine Wexler is gonna come along with um, someone who's from the dean's office and investigate this, they know then what it is. And they have a face to put to a name and not some scary detective behind a wall or glass where they don't know what's gonna happen to the information that goes out. And, you know, from the start, it manages their ex the expectations because they get me there to tell them that we're gonna give you a prompt resolution of this of this case, and I'm here to take input from you, and I'm here in your inbox, and you can call me, and you can let me know whatever it is you want me to know at any one given time. And first and foremost, rather than just being you know, this separate and scary procedure, we tell them that there's the opportunity to respond to the factual allegations that are against them, and that they're gonna be amply notified as to all the steps the university takes so from jump, the university is saying, we're gonna be formed adequately. We're gonna use experts who are, who, are, who are informed in the approach and the manner in which they're gonna undertake this endeavor. But we're also going to, you know, it demonstrates the university's ability to capably and amply consider the allegations. Um, and so from there, um, you know, I undertake in, in, that, in my, my practice, I undertake an, an initial assessment of the allegations themselves. Um, you know, gauge the severity along with the stakeholders of the university. Again, inform the parties as to where we are in the process. And then we disclose um, where and how the complainant um, is and how is being treated, and we gauge where the complainant is in the process and how, um, how much of, you know, how, if there's trauma, for example, what's gonna need to happen? Is, there, is somebody gonna need to be moved? Is the university have, gonna take care to make sure that, um, you know, they're not gonna be sitting next to each other on campus with glass, or there's not gonna be contact over social media, or you're not gonna use the um, university server to put something in his or her inbox that may threaten the integrity of the investigation. Um, and we're gonna talk to the, other, to the parties about whether things have been referred to law enforcement. So the accused, as, as it were, is not left in the dark holding the bag, you know, calling in lawyers who are not gonna be informed of what's going on. Everyone knows what the university's doing and what the university is endeavoring to do. They're not making a finding of guilt or innocence. They're making often, quite often, what is merely a finding of responsibility or non-responsibility as to whether or not someone adhered to the practices and policies and the students
standards that we expect you as a kid at this university is going to adhere to. If you're going to have the privilege of sitting in this university, then you're going to have to work it within the certain strictures of these guidelines. You're going to be a good student who's going to wear this hat and that don our sweatshirt and work towards what is a valuable, meaningful diploma. Um, again, I think in light of this investigative approach, it allows for less, um, more by way of fluidity in, in that exchange and less someone being, okay, merely the accused and the complainant. Um, in my practice, we utilize formal notice of investigation, again, so that at both the complainant and the accuser is on notice as to what he or she is, is up against, how the process is gonna un un unravel, what the time frame is gonna look like. Is this gonna go past this semester? Is this, are you gonna have to take this home and deal with me over spring break? Um, you know, these are kids, people, individuals who often go home to moms and dads. Sometimes they don't wanna talk to them about what's gonna happen. Sometimes they do and it's heavily on their people. What kind of advisors can we put in place for you as you navigate this, what could be the worst semester of your career? Um, what kind of academic support are you gonna get? What is it that you're gonna need? You know, do you need to drop that class? Do you need to facilitate a talk with the dean? Well, we can do that privately and so that you can manage things. Um, and uh, we're willing to do that so that, you know, we can, both the university can accomplish what it endeavors to do, the complainant can get what he or she needs, and the accuser can continue to exist and they can coexist on their campus. It's doing right by them. Um, we talk very candidly about whether or not prior or subsequent conduct may be an issue, it may become an issue, um, and how much of a reach we will have to do in light of the facts that are made known to us. We tell them explicitly that your prior sexual history is never gonna come into play. Um, and we talk about relevance, what is relevant to, to our query and, that may and how that may change, and how I may come back to you to ask you more questions about what's relevant. I talk about how I might have to go make a site visit to this place or that place, because sometimes the stairwells and portals and frat rooms that people may describe in a you know, drug-induced haze or alcohol-induced haze might not make sense or compute to me who's sitting in a conference room you know, taking notes. Um, and I talk about how I might consult with experts because forensics sometimes do come into play. Again, my background as a prosecutor, as an attorney who does this kind of work, um, informs my approach to the investigation, but by all means does not dictate it. Um, I'm not gonna lean on you know, my, the callings of my upholding homicide cases to, 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 to make out some substance. I'm gonna go to the expert, I know the importance of that. Um, and sometimes it involves coordinating with law enforcement. Um, in my practice and where I do the work, we then um, turn our findings into what is a draft investigation and again, I think this alleviates some of the concerns regarding due process because my draft of my findings doesn't include um, necessarily my recommendations as to whether or not someone is responsible or not responsible. But it does summarize the factual information that I've learned and it outlines what's the contested facts and what are the uncontested facts. And the parties then, um, and it's honestly, it's really hard to do. I like agonize for that room table because it's hard to get things right what to remember when you're splicing all this stuff together. But you know, I, I think universities who are taking this approach you know, are working very hard to get it right. But the, the draft investigation affords the parties the opportunity to then take a look at it and come back to me yet again 
and say, Christine, I want you to interview this person. I didn't give you her name at first, but I think she may have some more insight on who, what happened in the aftermath. Or I want you to take a look at my text messages. I'm going to call AT&T like an idiot. Or with the help of an assistant, you know, a, an advisor who's oftentimes an attorney, um, I want you to re-examine this in the wake of the policy and the way matter in which it's written. And um, we do that. Universities are doing that with this investigative approach. And again, I think that alleviates some of what you heard Joe talk about as the critical failures or the fire and brimstone of the accused and the complainant. The accused are they're in the know in that regard. You know, they, they know the manner in which their the information they've given a university has been treated. They know the way in which it may be is or is not being characterized. They know what facts are contested and what which are uncontested. And um, they have the opportunity to review and supplement it, which I think is really critical. And then before a final investigative report is made where there's recommendations that whether it's an, a finding that someone has violated the policy, for example, um, you know, um, there's been adequate input, both from the advisors, who are often the attorneys, and the individuals themselves. And again, the university, you know, is informed as to where this is going so that they can make, you know, decisions that are contemporary with the information they're receiving. But, you know, the parties, you know, know where this is going and know how they can do it. And I, again, I think that meets expectations and I think that's critical for everybody who's embroiled in, you know, one of these situations that's pretty awfully terrible. Um, I mean, to be honest, it's not something that's fun. I mean, it, it would be great if college was all just fun and sunshine and rainbows and big, wholesome fraternity parties, but we all know it's not. It's a really a time of, you know, it's a time of learning and growth and um, even just the hard lessons that social media teaches a lot of these cases, um, something that we have to work hard to get. So I think I've talked a lot. I probably, sorry, my time, but and I'm happy to answer any, answer any other questions about um, the approach I take, but I think it's critical for you know this audience to know that the investigative approach that the federal government certainly is endorsing rectifies and remedies a lot of um, the criticisms that are out there, and I think is doing a lot to inform, well, to meet parties' expectations or to help facilitate walking them through what is otherwise a big, lousy ordeal, um, to put it mildly. But it's also doing a lot to inform the universities and giving the universities. Um, a lot to work with in terms of how they handle students, how they advise them, and how they work through these difficult issues. And I think it, do, it does demonstrate that the universities are equipped to do what we know they are going to have to do, which is deal with allegations of sexual assault on campus. Administrator, district advocate, attorney, and policymaker. 
This work included consultations with the White House Task Force to Protect Students from Sexual Assault, participation on a U.S. Senate Roundtable, and testimony before the Maryland and Virginia State Legislature. <coughs> Professor Pintolupo was also selected by the United States Department of Education to serve as the primary negotiator on the negotiated rulemaking committee that was charged with implementing the Curie Act in 
methods are unique to Title IX and other equality laws. They simply do not exist under the criminal law. Therefore, if we criminalize Title IX, we would stand to lose the benefits of these innovative and effective methods. So I want to talk, uh, I want to spend the remainder of my remarks focusing on four critical ways in which Title IX's equality-based approach and the criminal law differ dramatically. To emphasize how much we stand to lose by criminalizing Title IX, I want to emphasize that these differences are structural. So even if police and prosecutors did their jobs perfectly, 100% of the time, these differences would remain. First, Title IX's goals are completely different from those of the criminal law. As a civil rights law, Title IX is concerned with equal educational opportunity and equally supportive educational environment. The criminal justice system is focused on keeping the abstract community as a whole safe from violence and basically relies on incarceration of criminal actors to achieve that safety. But that incarceration needs to be just, of course, and we cannot be depriving citizens of their liberty under the Constitution based on crimes that they didn't commit. So this means that the focus of the criminal system is on the defendant's rights, not on the victim's needs. In contrast, incarceration is not the focus of the equality-based Title IX approach because Thank you. 
And what I mean by procedural equality is that both parties to the proceeding get equal rights within the rules that govern the proceeding. So this is very much not the case for the criminal justice system, mainly because survivors are not even parties to criminal proceedings. They're merely witnesses. The prosecutor is not the victim's attorney and, um, and actually represents the state, whereas defendants do have their own attorney in the process. So already from, from the very beginning, in terms of status, there is an inequality. Um, and the most stark contrast um, between the civil rights procedural equality and the criminal system can be seen in the standard of proof. So whereas the criminal system uses a beyond a reasonable doubt standard of proof, civil rights systems require the preponderance standard because it is the most equal standard of proof. And the reason why it's the most equal standard is because it gives as little as possible presumptions of truth telling to both parties who are in the proceeding. And other standards give a heavy presumption in favor of the accused. So these standards can be taken and many victims do take them this way. And, and what I mean by this, by these standards is beyond a reasonable doubt or even clear and convincing. Uh, they're taken as a societal belief that victims lie. Sexual violence cases are often credibility contests and a process that builds a strong presumption in favor of the accused can be seen as a symbol that we believe victims across the board are so much more likely to lie than the, than the accused perpetrator is that we have to build safeguards against that lying into the very structure of our proceedings. And such a, an assumption is manifestly unequal because giving presumptions in favor of one side or the other is by definition treating them unequally. But in addition, in the context of sexual violence, a systemic assumption that victims lie is a kind of gender-based stereotyping that is widely recognized as a violation of equality rights. Okay, so it's also important to remember that the preponderance standard is used in the vast majority of cases in our legal system. Thus, if we used a different evidence standard in campus sexual violence cases under Title IX, we would be saying that victims of sexual violence should be treated unequally compared to the vast majority of other people in our nation, um, including all other students in, um, in most of our colleges and universities, which you know, have a majority of our colleges and universities adopted the preponderance of the evidence standard 15 years before the Department of Education came out with the, um, the 2011 to a colleague letter. And they did that for all of their proceedings, as Dean Anderson was saying. Um, okay, so <laughs> lastly, I just want to mention that um, Title IX's procedural equality has actually expanded the rights of accused students. Um, and this is a point that was first made by Alexander Brodsky, who is now um, a 3L at Yale University. Um, but in this case, what has happened under the Cleary Act and under Title IX is that, particularly under the Cleary Act, is that there has been an expansion of victims' rights um, that, have, that has been awarded. You know, the Cleary Act has, has definitely 
rights-oriented statute. And, um, but, but when the victim's rights are expanded, because of procedural equality, that means that the accused student's rights are also expanded, because the accused student's rights track the victim's rights um, under a procedurally equal approach. So a particular example of this is that under uh, the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court's uh, due process, administrative due process precedents for um, campus and school proceedings, which only require notice and a right to be heard, um, that very minimal due process standard, administrative due process standard, um, did not include a whole range of criminal due process rights, including a right to counsel. Um, and under the uh, Clery Act, a provision of the Clery Act now requires that students are allowed to bring a what is called an advisor of their choice into campus proceedings. And in fact, and, and the Department of Education, as part of the negotiated rulemaking that I served on, we decided as a group that we would um, that we would allow colleges and or we would keep colleges and universities from excluding attorneys. If students wanted to bring attorneys as their advisor to the proceeding, they are now allowed to do that. So in contrast to prior to uh, the Clery Act, to the recent amendments to the Clery Act, um, accused students actually could be prohibited by their institutions and, and overwhelmingly they were prohibited by their institutions from bringing attorneys to campus disciplinary proceedings because of the rights that were, um, that were extended to victims and now extended because of procedural equality to accused students. Accused students can now bring attorneys to, um, to campus disciplinary proceedings. Um, so I will probably, I, I just want to say one last note, um, um, and it's a very short one regarding affirmative consent. Um, my, my Yale Law Journal um, essay also discusses affirmative consent, um, which Dean Anderson has talked about at length, so I'm not going to talk uh, more about it right now, other than to just point out that consent is a criminal law concept, and the legal standard for Title IX um, is welcoming. So because sexual violence is a severe form of sexual harassment, and sexual harassment is defined as sexual attention or behavior that is unwelcome to the victim, um, this means that Title IX has always required affirmative consent, um, since welcomeness actually includes affirmative consent um, as, as a practical matter. Okay, so in sum, uh, we just we need to resist criminalizing our treatment of sexual violence that occurs in our schools. Um, and this, of course, also includes K through 12 schools, not just higher education, because Title IX, as we know um, from earlier presentations, applies to all levels of education. Um, but we also need to keep ourselves from sort of getting stuck on this criminal versus campus debate. Um, as Ms. Wexler-Rayer's presentation um, amply shows, we can take a whole different approach
colleges and universities need a different approach. Um, and, and, and we need to stop imitating um, what is happening in the courts just because, because it's happening in the courts, right? Um, we need to be thinking about what will work for our communities and what we are able to do under this amazing, flexible uh, civil rights statute. So, and I just want to caution us all not to confuse the current inadequate implementation of Title IX with Title IX pretenses. Um, it has much more potential if it were applied correctly and well. Um, and I believe that universities are in the best possible position to make Title IX's promise a reality. So I hope you all will join me So now we're going to start the Q&A. We do have a bit of our time for each event. Um, I will take a look. Is that right? Oh, we just got a good number. All right. Let's start over here. Yes. Hey, um, I have a couple questions. I'll just get one in there for you. Uh, can you just tell us, when you talk, you talk about the, and I understand that there are serious implications of the Fifth Amendment concerns and many others, um, but when you talk about the way That's a great question. I, th I think that it's really important to recognize one really fundamental truth. When at the conclusion of these hearings, Dean Anderson and no other panel on campus is gonna send someone to jail for 20 years. But Dean Anderson and everyone else who's on those panels, everyone else in the country can be subpoenaed immediately by someone who's currently a prosecutor, maybe not a retired one, and have the entire transcript and every single factor that happened there read directly to the jury, period. If you are in Virginia where life sentence for rape, and think about all the cases where it's two people with a lot of alcohol, where both are telling an honest version of how they felt it happened, they're just talking freely about it. When you don't have the kind of robust, robust due process rights, and particularly a lawyer helping you right then, the dangers are really paramount. So it's just not true, it just is not true that the stakes are really only about what's gonna happen in this academic setting, it just isn't. But on top of that, um, even in the academic setting, you have to understand that this is a really crucial right for both sides. I mean, the reason why we feel so powerfully about the fact that you have to have equality and make sure the student can't feel unwelcome at their school, it's not just to say, you're unwelcome here, go someplace else, is because being able to pursue an education is crucially important. That's also true of acute. Sure. Yep, please.
Right. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick about, about that. First of all, uh, no, you can't just do it through the evidentiary standards unless you want to go through all 50 states and the United States Supreme Court to be able to change the federal rules and the rules in all 50 states one at a time. So if you're concerned about justice or injustice in the cases happening today or tomorrow, we need to be cognizant of the fact of the rules that are in play on the cases that are happening today and, and tomorrow. Um, in terms of your question about why we don't go all the way to beyond a reasonable doubt, I agree with you because I don't think that it's exactly the same, even though I think there are very serious implications, but that's why we suggest the intermediate uh, standard of clear and convincing, which, rep which reflects the fact there's a lot of seriousness going on here, but not quite the, the, the kind of threshold that you have in the criminal justice uh, system. And you know, quite frankly, what's la lacking in the campus courts are all of the rules that apply in every single courtroom proceeding that uses preponderance discovery, rules of evidence, lawyers that can actually do something instead of just bit sitting there next to you maybe handing you a note. Um, you know, I could go on for on and on, but I want to make sure the others get a chance to answer questions. But they're just very different things that just don't exist in that context that exist in all of the other contexts where, where, where we use preponderance. Can I just add a little bit to that? Um, so the, you know, the the difference between, so there is this thing that Dean Anderson mentioned use immunity statutes, right? Um, they've been used particularly in the case of civil protection order statutes, um, which can also involve domestic violence cases where a, where a victim seeks a civil protection order um, that could involve a, a parallel criminal proceeding. Um, and, and yes, it could, it, it could at least require some amendment of existing use immunity statutes or potentially a new use immunity statute in 50 states. Um, but I would argue that that is preferable to, uh, you know, last I counted, we have over 5,000 schools, colleges and universities alone that are receiving federal funds and therefore would be would need to come up with procedures, um, and to me that it seems like 50 states is actually quite efficient um, in comparison to to the other to changing requiring 5,000 plus schools to change things yet again um, after they have already made their choices and and they've they've put in a significant amount of work to come into compliance with Title IX as it stands now. I think choice is a nice euphemism for what is happening at schools. I don't really think that it is choice. I think that there's a lot of force that's being exerted and pressure that's being exerted from the federal government. And I don't know too many deans anywhere or administrators who wouldn't take me, would take me up on that claim. Um, I disagree. 
in terms of a mandate that campuses investigate? I just want to understand the sure. question. That's interesting. I, I'm actually um, uh, uh, more interested in um, uh, m avoiding sexual assault exceptionalism. And I take the point that the OCR has mandated a lot of exceptional circumstances because its jurisdiction extends to sex discrimination and not beyond it. Um, but I, I, I'm interested in having campuses uh, uh, evaluate cases not in ways that are uh, uh, entirely unique to sexual assault. Um, I think that, you know, it's interesting <coughs> because Joseph said, well, they can just take protective measures beyond interim measures or some kind of interim measures without investigating. And I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you say, well, you need to change your chemistry section or you need to move out of the dorm without making some assessment that, the, that at least the allegation is credible. That's an assessment. Um, and it seems to me that if you're going to make an assessment, you need to see what the evidence is and you need to do some kind of investigation on it. That's true, certainly, and this is the part um, I've been invoked as a dean and, and I'm stepping down as dean shortly, so I don't conceive of myself exactly that way um, uh, right now uh, in this moment of transition, but uh, uh, have uh, engaged in a lot of uh, disciplinary proceedings in the 10 years I've been dean. And there's tremendous investigation for minor kinds of academic misconduct as well as substantial kinds of non-sexual or sexual assault. So I'm not opposed to investigation. I'd like it to be consistent across kinds of allegations. That is the norm, and that is the extent that's of it, and, that, and that's my criticism of it. I mean, that's that, 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 that that's primarily, and I think I want to be also be clear that it's not good for the complainant either to have their advisor, their advocate, their attorney uh, silenced in the process because by the time a school is bringing an expulsion hearing, they're probably not one of the schools that's sweeping it under the carpet, but they might be doing an incompetent job of making the case. And I think having someone who you don't have to worry about potential conflicts of interest who's going to ask the questions you want asked is really an important right, and I think it would be very helpful to, to make sure that there's active participation for both sides. At, now I'm not talking about pulling in the rules of evidence and making sure that everyone has to look up all the ways that individual courts have, have viewed this hearsay rule versus that hearsay rule, but at least having someone who's seen patterns in practice be allowed to speak is important. So this was actually a huge issue um, that we <coughs> spent a lot of time on in the negotiated rulemaking under the Cleary Act because the advisor of their choice um, provision that I that I referred to in my talk, and um, and the the department ultimately made the decision that that the rule was going to allow 
schools to restrict the, um, the participation level of advisors. Um, and, and I think that that, I mean, my sense from, I wasn't there negotiating on behalf of educational institutions. I was there on behalf of victim advocacy organizations. But um, the representatives from various institutional, institutional representatives um, made it clear that they do not have the resources for a full-blown trial. And once you allow the advocates to essentially be, to represent their clients in the way that they would as attorneys in a court proceeding, then you're, you, you are basically opening up the door to having a lengthy trial-like proceeding and it, and you know, most universities don't feel like they have those kinds of resources. And again, you know, the, the 5,000 school plus schools that I mentioned, you know, remember that those range from everywhere from, you know, five student beauticians academies in the local mall all the way up to, you know, the largest 60,000 plus uh, student universities, um, state universities. How about if I take a couple questions so that we can get a feel for what we'll hear and then in the back and then we'll respond. Sure, so, um, so most of my presentation um, does not uh, deal with students who are actively involved in an investigation or, or an adversarial proceeding. Um, so, so for instance, the accommodations that I talked about, um, the accommodations can be offered to students without a investigation happening. So what Dean Anderson was talking about was accommodations that would, that would involve actually moving the accused student, right? Or, or doing something that affects the li life of the accused student. But in fact, you can do a whole range of accommodations that would not necessarily affect the life of the sure, accused student. Yeah, so I, I just use victim because that's the, uh, that's the sort of statistical usage, um, the, the research-based usage that, the, that sociolo sociologists use. Um, and sometimes I use complainant um, 
but I've sort of gotten used to using victim, so that's the reason why why I use victim. It's not it's not an, any particular uh, reflection of my belief in uh, in the ultimate outcome of a particular case. Did you want to address the second question? Sure. Um, we have seen, I think your first part of your question was about outside professionals coming in to help adjudicate or investigate, and we've seen that a lot in response to kind of increased focus on these on these cases and the increased number. I think we're at 180 or so who are under investigation, campuses under investigation by OCR for allegations of uh, violations of Title IX. So um, uh, we, we definitely are seeing that. Your second question was about whether or not intoxication, because intoxication is such a common factor in uh, cases of uh, sexual assault, whether or not um, both parties could be concluded. Actually, the way you prefaced it was because of the definitions of consent and how those have changed, could both parties who were intoxicated be uh, assumed or concluded, you know, one could decide that they both violated each other's rights um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think that you've conflated those two slightly different things. It depends on how um, the intoxication problem, as it were, that you've posed is independent, it seems to me, of whether or not you adopt a passive consent definition or an affirmative consent definition. It may become more complicated with an affirmative consent definition, but it actually uh, depends on how the statute or the rule, and it's true under the criminal law as well, how the statute or the rule defines the interplay of intoxication and one's ability to consent. <coughs> now, one of the things that people, people often bring up this question in the context of educational programs that are happening across campuses, where people are trying to deter people from engaging in highly intoxicated sex uh, as a way to deter instances of sexual assault. And uh, there is a concern and a critique by some of those educational programs that they teach students that any sex that involves people who are intoxicated equals sexual assault or equals rape. That's not true under the criminal code and it's not true under the provisions of uh, uh, the campus code. The um, problem is how intoxicated someone has to be in order to be incapacitated and unable to give consent. And if someone is uh, that intoxicated that they cannot engage in sexual activity, uh, then I don't think we face that problem that you've posed. Um, if someone is unable to give consent and still is highly intoxicated because they are so intoxicated, so they're considered incapacitated by the law or the provisions of the, of the uh, local rule, the, the campus provision, and yet can still engage in sexual activity, then we've got an issue. Um, uh, we don't see those kinds of cases that often. Those are um, uh, more theoretical than real. What we see more often are cases of uh, the use of intoxication to incapacitate someone in order to take advantage of someone. That's kind of the, the heartland of, of many of these cases. I agree that it's a theoretical problem. I think that occasionally there are cases where people um, uh, that have come to light where certainly the allegation of the respondent and his or her attorneys is that that is what's happened. I'm not sure that that's actually what's happened. Yeah, I'm going to wait real quickly here and just say that uh, I agree with a lot of what uh, Dean Anderson said there, but not all of it. Um, I don't think it's hypothetical. Uh, one need only Google the Occidental case to see that it was a very real circumstance 
where, uh, we, but let me talk about for a moment, let's backtrack just where we do have agreement. There's a lot of folks who conflate the concept of intoxication and incapacity. A and I think that, that it's also a problem with campus policies that conflate the two a lot of the time. So we are seeing cases adjudicated that conflate those concepts. And the Occidental case is a classic one where both people were clearly very drunk and all of the witnesses also said that. But the complainant also texted to her friend right before then um, you know, uh, that she was going upstairs to have sex with this guy. She, she texted that she you know, you know, asked him if he had a condom. Uh, she had a 25 minute conversation about how to sneak into his dorm that was very much like the first scene in The Matrix hide behind this cubicle, sneak past here, the guard goes by. All those things demonstrated that she might not have made the same decision she would have made sober, but was probably not incapacitated, but on an intoxication standard, he was expelled. So we do have cases that are like that. Um, and, and I think that we could really improve campus policies there by making that a distinction because clearly someone who's incapacitated because of intoxication cannot give consent regardless of whether or not it's affirmative or a no means no, and, and people who take advantage of people who are incapacitated should be held accountable. Um, real quick, I, I see too, I mean, remember Kim, we talk about sexual assault sometimes, but Title IX also, it's gender-based violence is a really big part of some of these Title IX investigations, and often you'll see in gender-based violence cases, cross-complaint, um, you know, where you know sometimes these boyfriend-girlfriend relationships are get horrific fast, and third parties will report that. And um, you know when when an investigation gets taken, it starts you know, and then and you can get maybe some participation from from the female, for example. But sometimes the first question out of her mouth is, I can be, I, you know, I'm going to be responsible for this too. If she has also engaged in gender-based violence that maybe didn't escalate to the level that that where there would have been a complaint about it, but or there's often you'll see cross complaint from a boyfriend. And two, um, I have to say, you know. The, fir this, the first semester of this year, half of my cases were one-on-one -on -one cases. So um, that often, that case, that question, and that cross-complaint avenue that you mentioned often comes into play there. So yes, it's something that, that, that I, I think everybody sees and everyone's having to deal with. Yeah, and the last, last thing I want to say, and then I've literally got to run to the SEPTA, is um, that uh, Title IX also provides uh, a cause of action to those who are accused. And those who have been wronged in campus proceedings are now bringing Title IX claims in uh, court saying that they've been subjected to gender-based violence by the presumptions imposed by the, by the campuses against them. And uh, I think that's an important thing to recognize that Title IX is, is designed to be egalitarian. It's a civil rights remedy for uh, people of all genders. And with that, <laughs> thank you for the